We are starting a brand new series this morning. Uh, we're still in the book of John. Uh, we're still going through, we will be all year going through the book of John. And because of that, because we're, we're working our way through one particular book, then everything that we say in a series is going to be built on what we already said, especially chapter 1. So John chapter 1 was so full of John's introduction to us about who Jesus is. So I want us to kind of review real quick before we move on, review that the fact that Jesus is the place. You remember we said this a few weeks ago. Jesus is the place where multiple streams of Jewish expectation converge. So let's talk about some of those, some of those expectations that John introduced to us in the first chapter. Man, that first chapter is so packed full of information to say this is who Jesus is. John says, first of all, that Jesus is the word of God. Remember, he says that Jesus is the word of God, the one who is with God from the beginning, the one who is God, the one who is creator that brought all things into existence and that makes God known to us. But we talked about how not only is Jesus the creator that made all the things that exist, but Jesus is bringing about new creation. That Jesus is bringing light to a dark world, and he's bringing life to a dead world. That Jesus is the word of God who is the new creator, or the creator that brings about new creation, and he is the one that makes God known to us. We talked about how Jesus is the, the lamb of God, how Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who's willing to silently go and be oppressed and rejected and wounded and die to do the will of his father. And what's his father's will? To bring you and me, the nations, to God. We talked about how Jesus is the word of God, the lamb of God. We talked about how Jesus is the son of God. Tying it back to Psalm chapter 2 about how the king of Israel was the one that God would partner together with like a father and a son in order to shepherd his people. So God partnering with Jesus as father and son. We talked about how Jesus is the son of man, a Daniel chapter 7 reference, that Jesus is the heavenly being that has given dominion and rule over all the nations of the earth. Finally, we talked about how Jesus is the house of God. He is Bethel, Genesis chapter 28. He's the place where the angels of God are ascending and descending. He is the place where heaven and earth meet. And then we talked about how Jesus is all of these things because he is God. He is Yahweh. He is the one, Isaiah chapter 40, the one that John the baptizer was going in front of to prepare the way of Yahweh for Yahweh to come and shepherd his people. And so John takes all of these concepts. If you don't have those written down, maybe jot them down real quick or take a picture of it real quick. I won't think you're taking a picture of me. Don't worry. So, but, but we're going to work our way through the rest of the book and we're always going to be referencing back to this because John was very intentional in setting it up the way that he did because he's saying to us, this is who Jesus is. And I want you to come with me on a journey and I'm going to show you what Jesus did during his lifetime on the earth and I'm going to prove to you that he is these things. 
I'm going to prove to you that he is the word of God, the lamb of God, the son of God, the son of man. He is the house of God. He is Yahweh. I'm going to prove that to you because John believes, as do I, that when you see Jesus for who he is, you will believe in him. And that by believing in him, you will have life in his name. So with that in mind, we're starting this new series, Encountering Jesus, and we're talking about four different stories of people who came face-to-face with Jesus and how they encountered him. And what I hope happens is that I hope that through these stories, you encounter Jesus afresh, renewed. Because I know, I know everybody in here, you love Jesus. You're crazy about Jesus. Jesus is your entire life. He's the very core. He's your passion. He's your drive. He's why you do everything that you do. But imagine if that could, if you could experience Jesus again and fresh and new, your love for him might be even, even deeper, even greater, even richer than it already is. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And then for some of us, If we're real honest, we might have to admit that over time, our love for him has grown a little cold. That maybe our love for other things has become more than it ought to be. And that we should love Jesus more. And we want to love Jesus more. We want to know him better. And that's what I hope happens as we go through these encounters with Jesus. I hope that we encounter Jesus and our love for him and our passion for him and our zeal for him is reignited and refueled so that we come away with a brand new, fresh, deeper, and richer love for our Lord. This morning we're going to talk about Jesus and him being at the wedding banquet in Cana and turning the water to wine, and you probably know that story, and if you don't, you just read it just a few minutes ago in John chapter 2, 1 through 11. And here's the thing, though. I grew up coming to church, and I grew up hearing this story and knowing this story, but every time this story was ever talked about, the discussion didn't have anything to do with those themes and topics that John introduced in chapter 1. All we wanted to know is, can I drink, right? I mean, that's all we wanted to know. And every time I hear this story come up with Christians, that's what it revolves around. And there's a good discussion to be had about Christians and alcohol. And the Bible has a whole lot to say about sobriety and about not being drunk. The Bible has a lot to say about that. But that's not, that's not what this story is about. And when we try to make it about that, we miss the point. And when we miss the point, we miss Jesus. And we miss an opportunity to encounter him and to know him better. So let's start with John chapter 2, but let's start at verse 11, at the end of the story, and then we'll kind of go back to the the beginning of the story. But he ends this account by saying this, Jesus turning the water to wine, the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. Now, it's important that he calls them signs. All throughout John's gospel account, he's going to use this word signs, and it's significant, that they're not just miracles, they're not just mighty works of God, they are those things, but they're signs. You see, a sign is informational in nature. Signs are informational, right? They tell you something beyond themselves. They point to something beyond themselves. Imagine, I I know none of y'all would ever get pulled over for running a stop sign, but just bear with me a second. Imagine if you you ran a stop sign, you went through the stop sign, the police officer pulls you over and says, did you, did you see the sign back there? And you say, 
I did. I, I saw it. It was like the most octagonal shape I've ever seen. It was a beautiful octagon. I mean, all eight sides, perfect. It was perfect. And, and it was so red. I mean, the reds on that sign, they just pop. You've got good stop signs around here. I mean, that was a fantastic stop sign. I wish I could have taken a picture of it. I love that sign. Then the police, he'd probably have a lot of questions for you after that. But, but one of his questions would be, the, then why didn't you stop? So you're supposed to discern based on the sign, some sort of information. It tells you something. And that's what John is saying that these miracles were for Jesus. They were signs. And the way that John describes them and the way that John lays them out and what John tells you and what he doesn't tell you and the way he tells it to you is supposed to point away from the miracle itself to the identity of Jesus. We can get all wrapped up and enamored with the miracle itself, but that's just a sign that points to the identity of Jesus. And we've got to ask ourselves, what's this telling me about who Jesus is? What is this telling me about Jesus being the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Word of God, the House of God? What is this telling me about Jesus being Yahweh? That's what these signs are trying to communicate with us, to us, for us. So as we read back through this account, let's do so in a way of understanding this is a sign that's telling us something about Jesus. Look at verse 1, John chapter 1 and verse 1. John puts it this way. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, it's interesting. He says, on the third day. If you go back to chapter 1, every time he introduces a new sort of narrative part where he's telling the story of Jesus and what he did, he's always saying, the next day, the next day, the next day. So it could be that John's just giving a chronology of the events to say, this happened, and then the next day this happened, and the next day this happened, and then three days later this happened. And, and maybe, maybe some commentators think John wants you to add up all the days and to say, okay, that was the first one and the second one. And then by the time you get to the wedding, it's the seventh day of his narrative. That could be. Or, or it could be, and, and here's where I lean to, I, I think that he's saying it's the third day of the week, which would be what? Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, right? Tuesday. And one of the reasons I think that is I've recently read that Tuesday, the Jews believed that that was a great day for weddings. It was a tradition that Tuesday was a great day to get married because it was a day of double blessings. I'll tell you why. Because when they thought back to the original week, the third day, Tuesday of the creation week, it says this. If we went back to Genesis chapter 1, it talks about God gathering the dry land together. And then it says in verse 10, God saw that it was what? Good, God saw that it was good. But then it goes on, it says, okay, and then God made the the plants to grow, the bushes and the trees and the vines and all the fruit to grow on those things. And then it says again in verse 12, God saw that it was good. Twice on one day, God saw that it was good. So they said Tuesday, God likes Tuesday the best. God loves Tuesday. Tuesday is a good day. It's a day of double blessings. There was evening and there was morning the third day. So they said... Tuesday, the third day of the week, is a day of double blessings, so that's a great day to get married. So, so maybe John is just telling us that this Jewish couple got married on the traditional day that a lot of Jews got married on, the, the third day of the week. Or maybe, like the tradition itself, maybe it's pointing us back to the creation. 
to the creation week. Do you remember how John started his gospel account? In the beginning. And he was taking our mind back there so that we would understand that Jesus is the creator God. He is the word of God who makes God known to us and that created all things and that through him new creation was coming into the world. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it? What was created on the third day? Well, the dry land, but also plants, trees, bushes, vines, and the fruit that grew on them and the juice that was in the fruit. See, God created wine on the third day. And I think John is just expounding on and continuing his theme of Jesus being the creator who is bringing about new creation in everything that he's doing. He's bringing about new creation. And just as God created the grape and the wine on the third day, Jesus is creating wine anew on the third day. So let's continue reading. John chapter one, or John chapter two and verse two. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I recommend that you don't address woman as woman, but I, I think there's something lost in translation. I don't think Jesus meant to be derogatory at all. I think he's saying, dear woman, mother, and and I always read this to, to mean that Jesus is essentially saying no in a long way, haven't you? Like, I always read this to say Jesus is saying, look, it's not time for that. I'm not going to do it. But then he turns around and does it. And, and it seemed kind of confusing to me. But I don't think, if we read it, I don't, I don't think Jesus is saying no. He says, first of all, he asked a question. What does this have to do with me? Literally, what business is this of ours? And that's true. That's a legitimate question, right? I mean, it wasn't Jesus' job or Mary's job to provide wine for the wedding guests. It was the bridegroom's job. In fact, it was a a job that that carried with it honor or or shame in their culture. And if you didn't have enough refreshment for the whole crowd, it brought a lot of shame on you and your family. Not just on that day, but people would remember it. And they'd say, hey, you see that dude? That's the guy that couldn't provide enough wine for everybody at the party. I mean, for years they would be saying that. And so it was really his responsibility, the bridegroom's responsibility, to take care of that. And so maybe Jesus is just saying, that's, that's not my job. That's not our job. And then he says this. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, John is introducing us to a phrase that's going to be used throughout the entire gospel account of John. And it never means it's not time for me to do a miracle. That's not what it means. All throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus will be saying things like, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then when we get to the end of the book, Finally, Jesus begins to say, my hour has come. My hour has come. And what's, he, what's that leading up to? What is the hour? What's the hour of his glorification? The hour of his being lifted up. But he's not glorified and lifted up the way most kings are glorified and lifted up. He was lifted up on the cross. So the hour to which Jesus is referring isn't like, he's not just saying it's not time for me to do miracles. He's saying it's not time for me to be glorified. It's not time for me to ascend. It's not time for me to be lifted up on the cross. It's not time for me to do what I came to do. And so maybe Jesus is just simply saying, whatever it is that I'm going to do, I have to do it quietly and not draw a whole lot of attention to myself. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus' mother, Mary, 
Verse 5 says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, maybe she anticipated a a huge miracle. Maybe she anticipated he wasn't going to do anything. Maybe she's just saying to the servants exactly what it says. Whatever he tells you, do it. Whether it's big or little or he tells you nothing at all. Verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, and each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now, now notice what's going on and what's not going on. Jesus isn't saying, hey, everybody here, uh, y'all come over, watch what I'm about to do. Everybody come watch this, come watch this. He doesn't draw any attention to himself. He doesn't like touch it. He doesn't reach into it. He doesn't make a big spectacle of things. He doesn't even take the spotlight off of the wedding and what's going on. Nobody knows except the disciples and the servants. Nobody knows what's going on, that Jesus has anything to do with this. And maybe, just, just maybe, maybe this is part of the theme that Again, we see throughout the Gospel of John that if you're not careful and you're not paying attention, you'll miss what the Spirit is doing. You'll miss what God is up to if you're not paying attention. If you're distracted and you're caught up in other things and you're looking at other stuff, you'll miss it. It's happening right here in front of us. But you got to open your eyes and you got to pay attention. And so there were only a handful of people that were at this wedding feast that even knew anything was going on. Most people were totally oblivious to the fact that Jesus had anything to do with what's about to happen. Verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. That's who you'd call, right? I mean, he assumed it was the bridegroom's choice, and that the bridegroom had something to do with it. What are you doing, man? Why are you serving this stuff now? He didn't know Jesus had anything to do with it. He thought the bridegroom was the one who made this choice. He said to the bridegroom, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. That's true, I guess, at the time that that people tried to to pull one over on the people, you know, because they don't know any better, you know, let wait, keep the nasty stuff till later, and then you bring that out once they've had plenty to drink, and then you bring out that stuff, and they'll never know. They'll never know that you're serving them the cheap stuff. You just just wait. But why are you doing this? Why are you wasting the good stuff? These people don't even know what they're drinking at this point. So why are you bringing that stuff out now? Now, it could be that John is just recording the dialogue of what happened, because that certainly happened. But why? Why does John want us as readers to read this story and hear what the master is saying to the master of the ceremony is saying to the bridegroom? Is it so that we will understand the intricacies of uh, the culture in Cana? I don't think so. I think because this is a sign that points to Jesus. And I think it's probably an an indictment on the religious leaders of Jesus' day because that's exactly the kind of stuff that they did. They tried to give the, the people a poor substitute for what God wanted his people to have. They tried to trick them and deceive them and give them that wasn't give them what wasn't good, but Jesus comes along and he gives the very best. 
This is a comparison between two things. And again, this is a theme throughout John, isn't it? Jesus will say when he's talking about how he shepherds, he'll say, listen, the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. See, the other religious leaders and the other people, the other would-be messiahs, they offer up poor substitutes. But what Jesus is bringing is life. Jesus is bringing new creation. They offer the poor wine. Jesus offers the best wine. They say the people will never know. We can trick them. Jesus says they're my people and I want them to have the very best. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You know, as we look at the synoptic gospels, Jesus gives this this point in parables, doesn't he? He talks about a wedding feast. And he says, if you're his disciple, then then you're his guest at the wedding banquet. And you're here enjoying the good wine of new creation as opposed to what other leaders and other people try to offer you, the poor substitutes. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are experiencing new life, new creation. You're experiencing the good wine. Now, let's spend just a second thinking through this. Are there still people today that are offering in the religious world or in the political world or the world of entertainment or anywhere we might find ourselves, are there those that are offering up poor substitutes to say, you'll enjoy this, this will be great, this will be fun, this will bring you pleasure and and happiness because they don't think you know any better. And all too often from pulpits and in Bible classes and religious leaders, I mean, it's easy, isn't it, to give the people a poor substitute. Junk food. <laughs> that's, that's a modern idea, isn't it? I mean, I like a pizza and Cheetos. There's nothing better than a Cheeto. I mean, it's good. It tastes good. It makes me happy for a minute. But it's a f- poor substitute for a feast. Others are offering poor substitutes. Pop psychology or practical advice or philosophy or entertaining stories or cute little anecdotes and quotes. But church, this has to be a place where Jesus is preached. This has to be a place where Jesus is the focus, where we preach nothing. Like Paul, we preach nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Because he gives the good wine He gives the wine of the new creation. Everybody else has all kinds of poor substitutes because they don't think you'll notice and they don't care. The thief comes to kill and steal and destroy, but Jesus is different. Jesus brings life. Jesus brings new creation. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, then you're already at the wedding banquet. And you're enjoying what Jesus has to offer you. You're enjoying the wine of of the new creation. As the one who sits on the throne says in Revelation chapter 21, verse five, he says, behold, I make all things, what? New. Behold, I make all things new. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter five and verse 17, if you're in Christ, then you are a new creation. 
Right now, as followers of Jesus, we are enjoying the wine of new creation. And we're waiting and anticipating the full embodiment of that. And so the question for us, sort of the moment of truth for us, is how does my life currently reflect new creation? How does your life currently reflect new creation? If you're a guest sitting at the banquet table of Jesus, enjoying and being a part of the new creation that he brings, how does your life reflect that? Part of that is repentance, right? And usually when we think about repentance, we only think about the negative, like stop doing the bad stuff, and that's part of it. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, don't get drunk with wine because you're a new person, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, it's not just the negative, it's, it's the positive. It's a new orientation, a new direction, a new way, a new hope, a new focus, a new life. And it's reflected in everything that we do. You treat your spouse different, Ephesians 5, when you're a new human being in Jesus. When you're enjoying the wine of new creation, you treat your spouse different. You treat your children different. You treat your employees different. You treat your employer different. You treat your neighbor different. You treat your enemy different. You treat everybody different because you have a new kind of hope and a new kind of love and a new kind of joy. Not the kind of joy you you get from temporary things, but an in spite of your circumstances kind of a joy. A joy where you say, listen, with everything going on in my life right now, I ought to be so broken and beside myself and discouraged. Somehow, I have hope. I have joy because of what I have in Jesus. Our lives ought to be so radically different that people in the world notice a difference in us and say, what is it about you people? It's not your money. It's not that you're good looking. It's not that you're real smart. It's not that you you got this or that or the other. And we could say to them, we have found life in Jesus. See, because if you find something good, you can't help but tell somebody about it. You find a good restaurant, you can't help but tell somebody about it. Hey, you got to eat over here. It's great. And you're sitting at the wedding banquet of Jesus. You're enjoying the wine of new creation you got to tell somebody about it. you got to say to somebody, come see what I've seen. Experience what I've experienced. Have the hope that I have. Have the joy that I have. Feel the love that I feel. And sometimes we, we leave here, we got a, like a long list of things. i got to do all this stuff. i got to stop doing all this stuff and start doing all this stuff. Maybe there's some of that. But sometimes let's just leave here with a fresh joy a fresh joy that says, this is the life, a new life, and a new creation that I've been invited into. And our life will begin to reflect that new creation. So let's wrestle with that this week. And maybe there's somebody here this morning and you haven't yet accepted the invitation of Jesus to come to him, experience what he has to offer, enjoy the life that he has to give. Drink of that which he has to give to you. And if you haven't come to Jesus yet, or maybe, maybe you need to come back to Jesus, let us help you with that together as we stand and sing this song.